good, everyone? Welcome to Note to Scene, a weekly podcast that discusses the latest news in the scene and a retrospective deep dive on the nostalgia that we all grew up with. So this week we have news from Falling in Reverse, The Used, The Ghost Inside, and a deep dive unpacking how Dance Gavin Dance became one of the scene's biggest bands. So first off, Falling in Reverse's popular monster has become the band's first official number one single. Uh, Earlier this week, we lost Falling in Reverse guitarist Derek Jones. I did an additional episode of the podcast to honor Derek's impact on the scene. It's a super quick listen. It kind of recaps his history in our world, playing for the agony scene and a smile from the trenches before falling. And even when he was in falling, right when he joined, he was the one who picked Ronnie up from jail the day he was released. So as of the time I'm recording this right now, we don't have any further information on a cause of death or or even how the band will move forward. And until we get more facts, I'm not going to speculate on anything. I think a lot of that shit brings more harm than anything else. Definitely think for yourself and have opinions, but please be respectful to Derek's family and, and all his loved ones throughout this time. It's an incredibly difficult period, and, and any type of speculation on anything doesn't help anyone. But what I can talk about is their first number one rock radio single. So it had been gaining on Breaking Benjamin's Far Away for weeks now and officially took over in the closing days of this week. This is their third single to chart on rock radio following uh, 2017's Superhero, which got to number 22, and 2014's God If You Are Above, which peaked at number 28. Now, after talking about how it was likely that Popular Monster was going to get to number one on the episode last week, I had quite a few people reach out to me kind of asking what exactly that meant. So this chart, to break it down for everyone, tallies the total plays that songs receive on rock radio across the country every single week. For example, this week, number one is Falling, number two is Breaking Benjamin, number three is Grey Days' Sickness. Grey Days, for those who don't know, was uh, Chester Bennington's band before Linkin Park. They had reunited in 2017 and were going to release an album, but uh, this is all just now coming out. So that song is gaining a, a, a bunch on rock radio, and it's kind of crazy to see and unpack that as a whole, too. But number four is Green Days' Oh Yeah, and number five is God Smacks Unforgettable. I also have access to see how many plays a song received during any given period of the week and compare it to where it was at that point in the week before. So as of Saturday, for example, Popular Monster is up 8.5% in plays compared to where it was at this point the week before. I've watched these charts pretty religiously over the last couple of years and and usually when a song gets to number one with the kind of momentum that popular monster has right now it tends to stay there for a long time so obviously it's been a wild week for ronnie he tweeted on sunday i officially have the number one rock radio song in the country mind is blown he had been teasing this moment and he knew it was coming for quite a while now but on a separate note Before I recorded the additional episode about Derek last week, I asked on Twitter if anyone had any memories with him to to write into the show and tell me about him. 
One from listener Audrey really stuck out to me. She wrote in her email, she said, I first saw Falling in Reverse in 2017, but I didn't become a fan until 2018. While going through their discography and music videos, I easily noticed a change in members, except for one, Derek. With all the controversy and drama behind Ronnie through the years, I found it interesting that Derek was still there and didn't look like he had plans on leaving. I admired that. And his skill. He learned songs by ear. And his stage presence in general, and he became my favorite member. I met them at Warp Tour 2018 in Nashville and with the mission to get Derek the shirt I made him that said, Ronnie Radke hasn't fired me, which Audrey, great shirt. When it was my time to meet them, I made sure to show him and Ronnie the shirt, and they really liked it. I gave it to him, and Ronnie told him to hold it in the picture, which she sent below that she has with the band. It was maybe all of three minutes, but those were the best three minutes of the summer. A couple days later, I saw Ronnie posted a picture of Derek in the shirt. Nearly a year goes by before I see them again. I brought Girl Scout cookies and told Derek he was in charge of holding them. Ronnie and Derek remembered me from Warp Tour and told me how much they appreciated the little things I did. I had plans to see Falling in Reverse again, but then Episode 4 Tour was canceled due to Derek's fiancé passing. My show for the Gold Tour was canceled. I was hoping to reunite with him with the the Asking Alexandria Tour, but that was canceled too. I won't pretend that I was close with Derek, but it still hurts that I won't be able to show him how appreciated he is as a member of Falling in Reverse. So on April 23rd, Ronnie tweeted about Ryan Seaman, who was Falling's old drummer and someone he had a pretty big beef with and and falling out with when the band released their last album, Coming Home. But Ronnie said in the tweet that Ryan Seaman, he added Ryan. Ryan Seaman is still my friend. Regardless of what the internet says, I'm allowed to be mad at my friends. He showed me true friendship by reaching out to me yesterday. Here's a funny picture that I know Ryan would laugh at. Rest in peace, Derek. And it's the picture of Derek wearing the Ronnie Rag He Hasn't Fired Me shirt and Ronnie pointing at him and smiling. So this was a really cool full circle moment for me to read this email and to see Ronnie post that picture again and to have them kind of bury that beef. So we will see where Falling goes from here. I have no info on their next steps or anything like that, but the band itself is without a doubt the biggest they've ever been, and that's an incredibly wild story in and of itself in 2020. But moving on, The Used released a new album called Heartwork this past week. This is their eighth album, and it had throwback vibes from the start. They released a song called Blow Me, which is one of the heavier songs on the record, and it features Fever 333 and former Let Live vocalist Jason Butler. It featured also this digitized kind of version of their classic in Life and Death Heart on the single artwork, which then they also took and kind of gave a new updated version of on Heartwork's final cover. The song has a fairly solid hook. It's not fantastic, but it's pretty solid. And the riffs feel like, at the very least, an attempt at a throwback. Jason on this song gives huge Let Live vibes, which is just a really cool throwback for anyone who was around for Let Live back in the golden days of that band. But but that sentiment, an attempt at a throwback at the least, is basically what Heartwork is, with some additional temps updated flavor. You have songs like Blow Me and Paradise Lost, which are obvious stabs at bringing back some of the magic of 2004. And for the most part, Paradise Lost does that, winding post-hard griffs and a pretty big chorus. 
Bert using vague, ambiguous lyrics about not being able to shake an overwhelming like shadow in his life and that he feels consumed by it. This is pretty typical old school used formula. But a majority of the rest of the album is a misdirected attempt to either introduce new elements to the classic used formula that they can't really even emulate now or just misdirections altogether. There's a track called Wow I Hate This Song. It's probably my favorite moment on the album altogether. It's really just an overarching commentary of how Bert perceives like the current radio market as basically trash. And the song is structured to kind of reflect the foundation of those songs. It builds with this low-key melody until it snowballs into this really massive pre-chorus and chorus. And in that, Bert sings, Every time I hear the key, I see you in the melody. Never was a part of me. Wow, I hate this song. Each time it comes on, I hate this song. Each time it comes on. And then it jumps into this really rising post-chorus where he sings, La la la, hurt enough, la la la, make it stop, la la la, holy fuck, I hate this song. Now, however wrong Bert is here in his sentiment is irrelevant. There's obviously an overarching conversation about why and how rock music fell so far behind every other commercial genre right now, and shitty takes about how songs you hear on the radio are quote-unquote bad is a just massive part of the problem. But, you know, whatever, Bert. You can have your outdated opinions and, and write this fun parody type song about it that actually doesn't sound that bad. But then you go on the rest of the album and follow this song with multiple poorly executed pop songs. I'm not sure if I'm missing something here, but it feels super, super hypocritical and odd. There's a song called Cathedral Bell that sounds like a dad who has a band and heard his daughter listening to Billie Eilish for the first time and said, I could do that. No, Bert, you can't. There's another song, Clean Cut Heels. It sounds like this bastardized attempt at fusing Charlie Puth and like fucking Bozzy or something. The title track of the album is a, a spoken word interlude that I thought was going to lead into like a post-hardcore banger because I instantly got taken back to one of my personal favorite used songs, I'm a Fake, which is off Life and Death, but I'm a complete dumbass because it goes straight into the fucking Mark Hoppus feature on this album, which if anyone just hears that Mark Hoppus is on a used song in 2020, you, they, you should immediately know that it's a mistake. It's called Lighthouse and... Honestly, the structure of the song isn't bad. If you put a bubbling female pop singer over this song, you've absolutely got something. But Bert's voice has just taken a beating over the last two decades, and the ridiculous amount of pitch correction on this song can't even save his like fingernails on a chalkboard whales. Listen for yourself. I, I put it on the playlist for this week. It's fucking terrible. Travis Barker is on a song called Obvious Blahs, literally for no reason. I get it, it's 2020, Travis Barker is just going to be on every single song that is ever released from here to the end of time, but if you're not told that he's on this song, literally nobody would ever know. Not to mention that it's completely filler level, there's nothing special whatsoever. It, it, this was entirely, 100% unnecessary. Beartooth's Caleb Shomo is on a song called The Lottery, which has some more Crimea River type lyrics from Bert with this kind of tension building verse that explodes into a pretty shitty chorus and is all for naught. 
And then at the end of the song, you probably have the use heaviest moment of all time with Caleb screaming over like the most unbelievably unnecessary breakdown that's filled with so many of these overproduced pinch harmonics that you would think this was like a song that Norma Jean made on fucking GarageBand. It's terrible. I can't forget this song called Big Wannabe. It's so bad that I actually wish the band would have re-released one of the worst albums of 2017, The Canyon, just so they could put this on it. Just boring fucking ass melodies that drag on and on over Bert just talking about how he wants to be a superstar. And I'm sure if someone interviews him about this song, ask him what's it, what it's about, he's gonna say that there's some sort of double meaning or he's giving commentary on superstars. But please, just fucking save it, dude. <laughs> this album really, really fucking pissed me off. But listen, no one is expecting the used to reinvent the wheel at this point in their career. We know they're done growing. These songs are whatever they want to make them. That's fine. But one, nobody needs a 16 fucking song used album in 2020, or maybe ever for that matter. And two, Bert just comes off as this bitter guy on this, which, listen, after what he's been through in his life, he certainly has the right to be that way. But as someone critiquing this album, you don't need to listen to it. Just keep revisiting the same first three albums that like we've all been doing for the past decade and we can just move on. I'm at a five and a half out of 10 on the album. And first week is honestly an even sadder conversation because apparently they had a tour with Blink-182 set up to promo it. I'm not sure if it was supposed to happen leading up to the album's release, but if they were on a tour with Blink-182 before an album and had pre-orders up and all of that shit to promo, they could have benefited so fucking much from it. Their last album, The Canyon, in 2017 did 11,000 first week, and I just, I can't imagine that this one is going to do any more than 8,000, given the circumstances and where the world is at right now. And honestly, that's a super positive outlook. So we'll see next week when I get the when I get the numbers, but it's just not looking good for the used right now. Moving on, The Ghost Inside returned with a new song called Aftermath, and they announced their self-titled album. So this comes nearly five years after the band's tragic bus accident where they collided with a tractor trailer while they were on tour in a road in the desert, and it left both uh, the drivers of the vehicles dead. The band's drummer, Andrew, lost a leg as a result of the crash, and I remember being at Alternative Press when this happened, and he... Anyone who's aware knows that this this comeback was a long time coming. The band played their first show back last year at the Shrine in Los Angeles, which is a 6300 cap venue, and they sold it out. Bands like The Ghost Inside don't do that, especially nowadays. As I've talked about on the show, the decline of the scene, how it all fell apart, this doesn't happen. So there's a lot that goes into this, uh, any any tragic story of return and, and redemption, and that's really what Aftermath is about. The video for the track starts with footage of a local news uh, covering, a local news outlet covering the accident, and then it fades to... Uh, Ghost Inside's vocalist Jonathan Vigil screaming as the song comes in 
next to what I, appears, I couldn't find anywhere that, where they commented on it, but it appears to be where the crash took place. He's out in the desert and he's, he's screaming the words of this video. Uh, some of the lyrics are, today I woke up to a brand new me. I know I can't rewrite, rewrite history. Yesterday's gone and I'm ready for what tomorrow brings. So these are pretty typical themat thematics from the ghost inside even before the crash. But this is a story of redemption and a whole fuck ton more of emotional weight behind it. They don't bring anything new to the table on this song, but they're not supposed to. This song is what the Ghost Inside does, and they do it honestly very well. I'm at a 7.5 on it. Their self-titled album drops in June, uh, June 5th on Epitaph, and that'll honestly be a pretty interesting first week to track. But in other first week news, Enter Shikari's new album, Nothing Is True and Everything Is Possible, debuted at number two in the UK. This is the band's highest charting position of their career and such a cool milestone for them to hit so far into their career. It was so much fun seeing this band push these units and scratch and claw their way to this position like they did this past week. Seeing it as a fan brought me back to the good old days of when scene bands could actually do this over here. They were consistently giving their fans updates on what things looked like and telling them to stream and buy whatever possible and they were giving them updates on the forecast and it was just so cool to watch in real time because we don't get to do that in the scene pretty much at all anymore. Now, I don't have actual numbers for the total amount of units that were actually moved over there. I'll get their US numbers this week. But this is what I want people to read through the lines of when it comes to charting positions because I get so many questions about what first week sales actually mean and blah, 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 and how do you, you know, what do charting positions mean versus numbers and all of that. So you only see bands tout these charting position spots because it's so much easier to spin a success story that way. Now, number two on the main UK album chart is absolutely nothing to snuff at, but I'd be really, really interested to see how much this album sold in total first week units over there, as opposed to what their first week totals were for albums like A Flash Flood in Color or Common Dreads. You see, if a band like A Day to Remember releases their new album during a week where A-list pop stars and rappers aren't, they're automatically going to get a higher chart position because the competition is less. What matters is their actual first week numbers and where that stat puts them against the current competition. For example, A Day to Remember's last album, Bad Vibrations, officially debuted at number two on the Billboard Top 200 behind Travis Scott's Birds in the Trap Sing McKnight. However, on Billboard's traditional album chart, the one that doesn't include streaming, they had the number one album. So I was still at Alternative Press at this time when Bad Vibes came out, and I wrote this story and was forced to change my headline for it, saying that A Day to Remember had the number one album on the album's chart. This is bullshit revisionist history. A Day to Remember did not have the number one album, but labels and management know that they can twist a story to make it look like they do. And that is complete bullshit. On top of that, you see when bands release new albums about how high they charted on like seven, eight, nine different fucking charts. I'm gonna give you guys the only two you need to care about. The Billboard Top 200 and the Hot 100. Those are the only ones you need to care about. And as scene fans, you don't need to care about the Hot 100 because there is no fucking scene band that has a song charting there. 
For fun, I talk about rock radio because there are scene bands that are still getting played there. And the, the media based chart for rock radio is what I look at for that. But those are it. Literally no other chart matters. It's like it blows my mind how nobody realizes how much website traffic Billboard does off of their charts. It's why they're the only pages on their site that doesn't have a fucking paywall. I've seen their traffic sites before in real time. Their charts are everything for their online presence. The more they have, the more traffic they get. Nobody gives a fuck about the heat seeker chart or the bubbling under charts or the fucking vinyl charts. They don't mean anything. The top 200 will show you your favorite artist's true momentum as long as you know how many numbers are actually behind their position. But all of that is a different rant for a different day. Before we deep dive into the deep dive, I want to give a couple quick news shout outs. Randomly, there are two new Amir side projects this week that are actually pretty dope. Darko, which has Amir's drummer and Chelsea Grin's vocalist, released their first songs, Divine Void and Electric Body. I highly, highly, highly recommend Divine Void for anyone that misses Tony Tap Dance Extravaganza or Glass Cloud. Like, this shit will rip your fucking face off in the best way. It's just like speed deathcore. And Joshua Travis, from also from Amir, and also formerly of both Glass Cloud and Tony Tap Dance, released a song with the vocalist from Monuments, which could honestly just be on the Darko project and probably should be. So if anything I mentioned above sounds good to you, check this out too. Also, Lil Extra, this quote-unquote SoundCloud-type rapper, is signed to Hopeless, and he released his label debut called uh, Taking Up Space. I've heard from behind the scenes and a couple different people, I didn't dive too deep, but he's beefing with Hopeless hard because they're not agreeing with his release schedule for how much music he wants to put, put out, and I don't know all the details behind that, but there's also a lot to unpack about how scene labels should have been on this SoundCloud rap wave five fucking years ago because it's literally over now. I work in hip-hop for my main job, and the genre, while it's still on top, is just figuring out what's next for itself right now. And literally just now, scene labels in 2020 are signing quote-unquote SoundCloud rap kids. But anyway, different rant for a different time again. But this album, Taking Up Space, it's honestly surprisingly good. This kid knows how to put a song together, and also he put this super random full band emo post-hardcore kind of banger on it. If you're interested, check out Hive, Downturn, and the post-hardcore track is just called HXHXHX. If any of that interests you in any way, I definitely recommend it. The songs are good. The math is right. It's a shame that, you know, the scene labels can't get their shit together and push these kids because it's obvious that this this isn't going to go anywhere. Okay, on to this week's deep dive, which is Dance Gavin Dance. Now, to do a full comprehensive deep dive on the history of Dance Gavin Dance from beginning to end, I need to make it like a three-part series or some shit. Like the amount of history incorporated into this band is unlike any the second half of the scene has really ever had. You know, past the the peak in the mid-2000s when you had 
the neon era and post-hardcore had its very weird era that was incredibly fun in the late 2000s, which is where Dance Gavin Dance comes from. We never had a story like this past the commercial peak of the genre, from the never-ending Johnny Craig drama and the general lineup instability to, to multiple lineup eras and, and being partially saved by like this pretty unlikely frontman candidate in Tillian Pearson. Because if you remember, Tillian was trying to get into both Amorosa and Seosin before dance, but I'll unpack a little bit of that later. So instead of doing a week-by-week, day-by-day history of Dance Gavin Dance, I'm going to unpack their commercial history, which ends with them becoming one of the scene's biggest bands right now. So in order to find out how they got there and what made them such a massive juggernaut right now, we got to go back and give some context as to where they were with the Johnny and Kurt Travis eras. So Downtown Battle Mountain, the band's first official full length, didn't even chart on the top 200. Like that's how little it sold first week. But Rise was just getting going at the time and that label itself had a lot of like gravitas around it. There was a lot of hype just behind the Rise name and that was enough to to justify giving the band its first release and pushing them in some way because the scene didn't really have a band that sounded like them and we didn't know what was next for post-hardcore and at the time the the soulful r&b contrast with the screamo vocals wasn't really a thing yet but it did generate palpable buzz even though it didn't sell anything and the johnny drama put a lot of eyes on them but still the death star album their self-titled album only debuted at 175 on the top 200 after all of the Johnny drama. It barely made the chart. I don't have numbers for this either, but this album made Dance Gavin Dance such a cool fucking band to like. There was nobody that sounded like this album, and I stand by it being Dance's best album. It's this violent, reckless, uncontrolled, and yet somehow still coherent at the same time. It's channeling like this vitriol that you hear in these screams into these vicious post-hardcore tracks. And despite no more real Johnny drama, it was enough to carry them into their next album, which was Happiness. And this, honestly, this album is one of the most underrated scene albums of all time. Happiness debuted at number 145 on the top 200, and again, it was far too low, and it's really hard to find sources for these numbers when they debut so low, but at that point in time, the band had Will Swan screaming, and although he did an incredible job on this record, and I think it's way more beloved now, you know, in history than it was back then, it really looked like their momentum as a band was waning. Not a lot of people gravitated to it, although... I recommend anyone who hasn't heard this album or revisited it in a while, do it when you have the chance. Carl Barker is hands down top five Dance Gavin Dance songs of all time. But after this, Johnny came back and the shit show started all fucking over again. They put so many eyes back on dance. So either knowingly or unknowingly, the band played right into the evolving Dance Gavin Dance lore and made this next album with Johnny, a sequel to Johnny's first album with them. People underestimate the power of, of names and sequels and how you frame things. Why do you think Hollywood makes so many remakes and sequels? I always like to say their Hollywood's motto is, if it ain't broke, remake it so you can, in most cases, break it. But Downtown Battle Mountain 2 wasn't most cases. 
this album delivered on the Johnny Comeback hype and songs like Blue Dream and Pounce Bounce and Elder Goose and Thug City, they all became pretty instant fan favorites. And all of this carried them to their biggest debut of their career at that time. They uh, charted at number 82 on the top 200 and they sold about 9,000 total units first week. This total's kind of interesting and this is just a super brief sidebar because Rise also released a Hot Topic edition of the album and for some reason SoundScan at the time counted it separate from the original version of the album. The original version sold a little over 6,000 first week while the Hot Topic version did somewhere around 3,000. So regardless, yet another step up from the band. If you combine those two, you get 9,000. They charted way higher than, than Happiness or self-titled. So the Johnny comeback worked. It made them the biggest they'd ever been at that time. And then shit hit the fan like never before with Johnny. I won't go into those details because we could do a two-hour show just on the Downtown Battle Mountain 2 cycle of how fucking insane it was. But if you were on the ground at that time, you know. So long story short, 2013 rolls around and we get the announcement nobody saw coming. Tillian Pearson is replacing Johnny Craig in Dance Gavin Dance. Everyone was fucking floored when this happened. We all thought at that time, if anything, Tillian would go from Tides of Man to one of the two bands he'd been, it what felt like, auditioning for for years, Emerosa or Seosin. Everyone in the scenes post-hardcore world knew Tillian was a top-tier vocalist, and there were fucking message boards about this guy back in the day because he had such a unique voice, and people wanted him to be in different bands, but it was so funny because dance was never brought into that equation. He kind of landed into that more respected, less-seen-kid type world, which leaned more towards Seosin, and not a lot of people ever considered Amorosa a scene-kid, hot-topic-y band, even though that's where they got a lot of their momentum from. So, the proposition of Dance Gavin Dance was so exciting at this time. Between that and the Johnny Craig beef at an all-time high, Acceptance Speech did give them their biggest charting debut at this point in their career, number 42 on the top 200. But it's slightly dropped in first week sales to, to 8,300. And this goes back to what I was talking about before, earlier in the episode. It's so, so important to know the numbers behind a charting position. Because if you just have the positions, they can tell a very different story than reality. The reality was that the receptive to acceptance speech wasn't the best. People expected a lot more from Tillian's debut, and the Johnny Craig drama reached such a fever pitch that I think a lot of people had jumped ship at that point. Critics, reviewers, when the album came out, they went in on the, uh, the lyrical content, the production, which the band actually addressed the production this past year when they released a remastered version of the album. But Tillian's voice was very pitchy, and it was almost too pitchy. Like, it, it, it felt off. There were, the math was not lining up on this record. And it's kind of funny to look back on the lyrical critique specifically now, which has only helped the band grow. The Dance Gavin Dance fan base gravitates towards the lyrics on these albums. They're supposed to be ridiculous. It's part of their draw and it leans into the Dance Gavin Dance lore. 
they've always been animated. I mean, from their continued artwork scenes that have been following them since since album one to sequel songs and underlying storylines. And usually I, I am so far against concept albums as, you know, commercial entities, but Dance Gavin Dance figured out a way to market this shit. And they have built a world around them and a foundation around them to watch everything fall for the rest of the scene, and they just keep fucking growing. And this is honestly how you stay dedicated to something, continuing to double down, recognizing when things aren't working, and making them better. That's what Dance Gavin has done so over the last five years. So after the slight disappointment of acceptance speech, the band fired back fairly quickly at the time with instant gratification in 2015, which is where they really started building the momentum that we see today. The album just felt like the band and Tillian were fully on the same page. They play off each other so well without fault, song after song. Gratification debuted at number 32 and sold 15,000 copies first week, which was both their highest charting and first week totals at that time. This got a lot of people turning their heads in the industry. I remember no one expected them to do this. A lot of people wrote them off, especially after acceptance speech. I mean, a lot of people wrote them off after Johnny jumped ship again for the second time on the Downtown Battle Mountain 2 cycle. But introducing Tillian to the fold created a lot of hype all over again. But once the album came out, it was a little bit of a disappointment. So a lot of people behind the scenes wrote them off as they're going to go away. But 15,000, that turned a lot of heads at the time. It was so obvious that this cycle was only going to grow them. And as long as they delivered on the next album, they were really going to put themselves in a new conversation. And they did. Mothership came out literally like a year and a half after gratification. And that, that is where Dance Gavin Dance began separating themselves from the rest of the scene. Not only were they releasing exactly the music they needed to for their fans, but they were doing it at a rate that literally nobody else in the scene was. And this has been one of my consistent, constant critiques of rock music in general. They can't keep up with the pop and hip-hop structures when it comes to release schedules. You can't just tour for two years, take some time off, and put out a record in three anymore. There are exceptions to every rule, obviously, and I always put that as a caveat, but it's just not feasible for an industry standard right now. And you hear every fucking bro with a guitar complaining about how much longer it takes full bands to write and record. Dude, shut the fuck up. You want to know why? you can't make any fucking money from streaming it's because you refuse to evolve for being like supposedly tough guys nobody whines more than rock and metal bros like quit fucking trying to refine a couple notes on a song from an album nobody's gonna fucking hear and refine your business strategy but anyways Mothership was exactly what Dance Gavin Dance needed to do at that time. Everything was perfect. The music, the lyrics, the release, the tours, it all fed directly into the band's fan base and grew them like never before. Betrayed by the Game off that album, hands down, top 10 Dance Gavin Dance songs of all time. And that weird ass like double bass bridge part sing scream harmony and frozen one is one of my favorite parts post hardcore moments of all time mothership ended up doing 19,000 first week and debuted at number 13 then in 2018 they released artificial selection 
and to whoever decided to launch the pre-orders for this album before the band ever released any music, I hope you got a raise. The band had the most hype of their career and played the pre-roll into the announcement perfectly. Bands, if you have actual hype and people are hyped for your new album, announce it, put the pre-orders up before releasing a song that could potentially suck and you turn people away, let them believe that you wrote the follow-up they wanted you to before you potentially disappoint them. Dance Gavin Dance did both here. They put them up early and delivered. Selection did 30,000 copies first week, and it debuted at number 15. So again, obviously, number 15, a drop from number 13. But look at the sales numbers, not the chart position. Selection dropped two spots because of the release competition that week was more tough. But they jumped 11,000 units from 19,000 to 30,000. That's insane at this point in the scene. Now, Selection wasn't a huge step forward from Mothership musically, but it was enough to make fans happy and still grow the band. It was on this cycle that they were direct support for Under Oath's uh, album headlining tour and were outselling Under Oath in merch almost every night. This album solidified dance as a scene juggernaut. So fast forward to now, and they just released their ninth full-length album, Afterburner. Unfortunately, although we have to wait until first week is done to know exactly where they land as far as numbers and charts go, it's looking like this is where Dance Gavin Dance's numbers are going to take a downturn with this massive asterisk next to it called coronavirus. The last few weeks I've unpacked releases and, and how the how much the virus has affected those first week sales. Every case is different, but Dance Gavin Dance have arguably, arguably been hurt the, the hardest by this virus so far. Their headlining tour they had lined up to end with Swanfest on the day of the album, the day the album came out, was postponed. I don't think people understand how much this tour was going to catapult this fucking album. And then to end with their own fucking festival, pre-orders were going to go through the roof. Now, last week, the band released a statement saying they were not only given the option to delay the album, but were feeling pressure to do so. This is insane. Labels don't come in and push direction anymore. They know that these albums are just going to do what they do, and that's kind of it. There's no reason to push for charts. It's not big enough. It's not like the old days when you had fucking Victory Records trying to go after Nelly so Hawthorne Heights could get number one. This doesn't happen anymore. Ultimately, Dance Gavin Dance declined to push the album back. Here's what they said. Next week on Friday, April 24th, 2020, Afterburner will be released. This album was supposed to come out on the day before Swan Fest and cap off a fantastic headline tour, which was going to be our biggest one yet. Obviously, the world had different plans, and now here we are. Shortly after our tour was canceled, we were presented with the option to delay our release several months to accommodate the physical CD and vinyl production challenges, and the closure of retailers and other parts of the supply chain that came to a halt during this crisis. However, that idea didn't sit well with us because we knew our fans were very excited about this release and we did not want to have anyone wait past the date that we promised them, especially now when everyone is craving entertainment. After working with our retail partners, we are able to keep the current release date, but only for streaming and digital versions, with the physical, vinyl, and CD being released later in the summer. 
Afterburner, in terms of sales, was projected to be our most successful release yet, with our most significant first week, sale, first week and sales charting in the band's career. With the absence of physical retail sales, that now most likely won't be the case. But it was more important to us to keep our original release date than a higher position on a chart right now. With that being said, we hope that all our fans will support us the best they can by streaming it on whatever platform you prefer, digitally purchasing the album on iTunes, Amazon Music, Google Play, counts as an actual sale and we'd be much appreciated by everyone on our team. Everyone that ordered a physical album or bundle on our direct sites, we thank you very much, and you will be receiving your digital download upon release day that you can use immediately. When the CD and albums are available, they will be sent out directly, and the album will also be available at many retail stores that sell music. You can still pre-order the Target Special Edition CD, Urban Outfitters, and FYE exclusive vinyl, and the many more options in our web store. Again, thank you for being the dedicated fans that you are, as it's been a very tough month for all of us. But we hope you will continue to stay strong, healthy, and get through this. Enjoy Afterburner, and we can't wait to see you out on the road soon. Now, they, these, were two, these were three screenshots. They put the statement on kind of like these promo boards, and they, they, the status part of this tweet said, We were feeling pressure to postpone Afterburner's release, but we decided the fans deserve the album on 424, as promoted. The best way to support the band right now is to buy a digital copy on iTunes, Amazon Music, or Google Play. We appreciate you. This band understands how the industry works. Scene bands and rock and metal bands in general can't fucking stream. That's why they're telling you to buy a digital copy of it because a digital copy counts as one sale. You want to know how many streams count as one sale? It's all weighted differently and the the process is just very complex right now, but it used to be 1500 streams equals one unit. Now, different streams are weighted differently based on whether you're listening to it on demand and you're paying for it, or it's on something like Pandora or a free version of Spotify. Those streams count less. If you're paying for the streams, those streams count more. It's somewhere in between the range of 1,000 to 2,000. But here's the main thing to unpack from this. The band have no reason to lie that this was forecasted to give them their biggest first week of their career. Their fans and scene fans in general just don't understand what that means, like I unpacked earlier in, in, in the episode. Labels have kept that info from fans for the entirety of emo, and it's never it's just never been part of the culture like it is for pop and hip-hop right now. Those kids care about what their favorite artists are going to do first week and they will do whatever it takes to get them to the numbers that they want to see the chart reflect. But knowing that this was going to be Dance's biggest first week ever only makes me wonder how fucking big were they going to go? Like were they going to get close to 40,000? We haven't seen a release get close to that in years. Honestly like the last two albums from non-scene breakouts were really a day to remember and pierce the veil to, to get above that range or in that range. Now it's likely we aren't going to get to have that conversation. That's so fucking defeating because it would have been so much fun to see how big dance could have gotten. 
I'm still excited to see where what they managed to do, but Dance were gonna shock everyone with this album again, and now it's not gonna happen. This band has always been an underdog, and they've done everything on their own terms, and I respect the fuck out of that. But everything I've been talking about in this dive, the drama, the lineup changes, delivering on the music, and building a dedicated community around this lore of a band as just being you know, continually giving their fans what they want in new ways and at a pace that no other band is doing has all played a hand in making Dance Gavin Dance the biggest they've ever been right now. I'm worried, like genuinely concerned about the effects this virus will have on bands that do have hype right now. Dance Gavin Dance won't fall apart after this, but it just made this cycle so much harder for them in a commercial sense than it was going to be. You can literally hear the tone of that statement that they released in, in the past month. The, the decisions that they've had to make are, are ridiculous and pretty defining about the future of their band. But always endless props to them for doing what nobody thought they could. Forever the underdogs, I'm excited and thankful to still have this band in 2020. But that's it for it th- for this deep dive. Thank you so much for listening this week. Next week, we're going to unpack the dance numbers and the used first week numbers and do a bit of a deeper dive on where scene bands are at on rock radio right now. If you have any questions for the show, email me at note to scene at gmail.com. You can subscribe to the show wherever you listen to the podcasts. Follow Note to Scene on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you enjoy the show, please drop a review on iTunes. I'd very much appreciate it. Until next week, stay safe, and I'll talk to you soon. Mm-hmm.